This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. You know, this morning we're going to be talking about family, so you might take your outlines and your Bible out. And what I'd like to do to start us out today is to talk about uh, two proven ways that uh, make life lighter, really, for your family. You know, a lot of things have been decided by a toss of a coin, you know, where you throw it up and you go heads or tails, and uh, depending on which one you choose, sometimes you get to choose the right one, and you're the winner, and you get to choose who picks first or who goes first, or who gets the best part, or who gets the right side of the field, and so on and so forth. But often tossing a coin, throwing it up into the air, is basically a decision about who's going to be the winner and who's going to be the loser. So you throw it up, and heads, maybe you win, and tails, you lose. Well, this morning I would like to talk about a special kind of coin that you can remember in your mind. It's a coin that you toss in which there are no losers. Heads you win, and tails you win. Each choice makes you a winner because each choice introduces you to a proven way of making life lighter. And I want to introduce that before we start talking about families here today. So what is heads? Well, heads is kind of a reminder of the first message that we use to open up the series. Heads is when we take the time to listen to Jesus Christ and let the unnecessary things that oftentimes weigh us down in life go. It's what I talked about when we introduced you to Martha and Mary and the conflict that was going on there when they met Jesus and uh, Martha was so busy and yet in the midst of that she just became more busy while Mary had the good sense and the good focus of turning herself to Jesus Christ and listening And Jesus said, you've chosen the good part. And as you remember in that opening series, we talked about that she chose the good part in that she chose to be under authority and listen to her God in the discipline of solitude. And in that, to choose the best and to order her life in a way that would bring peace to it and rest. And I hope for some of you, after talking about that message, when you find yourselves in a world that sometimes feels like a track meet or a circus that's unending with no let up, that for some of you over the last few weeks, you've taken the times and called heads. You've called heads. And you've listened to your Lord. You've practiced the discipline of solitude. You've thought about what's the most important things and placing yourselves under authority. You allowed yourself to let certain things that seemed so important go. And you've discovered they weren't really that important after all. You've given margin to your life. You've given breathing space to your life. You've let things kind of be put on hold for a while or put to another place in your your calendar in the future. And by that, you found some rest. You know, from the response I got from that opening message, obviously we're, we're all a people in need of relief, aren't we? Need some time off. We need some time to breathe. And just giving yourself permission to let some things go feels like taking a giant load off of your shoulders and how good that tastes. That's what I call heads. And heads is an important discipline to practice to make life lighter. This morning, however, I'm gonna turn the coin over and we're gonna spend most of our time talking about tails. 
And before I tell you what tails is, let me just first say it's a bit more challenging than heads. I mean, heads feels good because it is in some ways just a passive relinquishment of things. You get your orders and you don't have to go do more work. In fact, what you do after you listen to your Lord is you do less work. And doesn't that feel good? I mean, some of you walked out of that first message and you said, you know, I don't have to rebuild that part of my garage this month. And that just felt good. I don't necessarily have to go get the car clean today. And that felt good. Or I don't have to go do this recreation just because everybody else is doing it. And that just was a load off your shoulder. I can just be me. But that's kind of a passive, re passive relinquishment of things. But that's still an important discipline and it feels good. Tails, on the other hand, is anything but passive. In fact, it's a very focused pursuit of a few strategic things. But it also breathes lightness into life. So what is tails? Let me give this definition. Tails is always getting the strategic things in life done first. We've had fun and celebration with our students here today, and uh, I know some of them, my daughter in particular, who at this season of life where there's only 10 or so days left in school, you're kind of trying to drag them across the academic finish line. You know how that feels? But you know, all during the school years of my kids, when they come to exams and projects, we always try to teach them that doing the strategic thing first will make your school life lighter. But they have to learn sometimes the hard way. They've got a big project coming up on Tuesday, and it's Thursday going into the weekend. And we're reminded it'd be good just to buckle down and get that project or study for that test now. Get up on Saturday morning, get it done, and you can enjoy the weekend. But they don't believe you. So they put it off. And what they discover is what all of us discover time and time again, because this is the time-tested principle. And that's this, when you don't study, and you go out on Friday night, and you go out on Saturday night, and in some cases even Sunday night, you're doing the same things you've always done, but you know what happens? They don't feel as good, do they? There's a heaviness that starts setting in on Friday night and extends to Saturday, and it grows into Sunday. Things become to feel burdensome and uncomfortable. Yeah, you're still going out to Chili's or Sonic or wherever with your friends and you're laughing and telling the same stories and things like that. And you're enjoying yourself with your friends, but there's a load on you. There's a whisper in the back of your brain that's going, test, <laughs> project. And it gets heavier and heavier. You know, you could have done the same thing, spent the same quality and quantity of time on Friday and Saturday night, but had studied Saturday morning and you would have been frolicking with the best of them, with carefree kind of feelings, enjoying things spontaneously because you had gotten the project done. You did the strategic thing first. But you know, when you don't do the strategic things, life gets heavy. Some of you know that because you're in debt. And uh, you've not chosen to really focus on paying off that debt. In fact, you procrastinate from paycheck to paycheck. It's gotten to be serious debt. But now the rule of tails sets in on you. It becomes a joy stealer. It's not something that you can just kind of put, as the old adage says, out of sight, out of mind. You put it out of sight, but it doesn't go out of your mind, does it? And there you are, and you're with your friends, and there's this spontaneous moment where they're all going to go away for a weekend or go out to eat at a nice restaurant, and you get pulled into it in the excitement. But everybody else is free. 
But in the back of your mind, you're hearing the word, more debt. You don't have the money. How are you going to pay for that? And so the whole evening while everybody's laughing and telling stories, enjoying things and ordering dessert and all that, life feels uncomfortable. It feels heavy. When an unexpected bill comes in, it feels like a nightmare. What should be fun to buy something new is just another guilt producer because you have put aside the general rule called tails. And you know, life will stay heavy until sometime at some place you decide to get strategic about meeting the most important things in your life. Now I could tell a, a hundred stories like that all over the spectrum of life, but the general rule remains the same. The sooner you address the strategic things in your life, and the sooner the better, the lighter it will become. And I want you to think of a question all the way through this message here this morning. Because your brain is this wonderful computer, plus you have the Spirit of God. But you might ask yourself as you think about your life or your family or your marriage or your children, what is the most strategic thing that I can do that I'm not doing that would make a difference? You ask yourself that question and listen, God will provide a very clear answer, I promise you. And if you follow through and do it first, your life, and especially your family, will get lighter. Stay ahead of your studies and life will be fresher. Stay ahead of debt, life will be more lighthearted. Stay ahead in your marriage, it'll be more fun. Stay ahead in your family and it will be more enjoyable. It's called the rule of tales, of tales. You know, this morning I want to take that principle into a heavy home. And it's found there in Genesis chapter 25. And I want you to notice this morning the message is entitled Making Life Lighter in Your Family. And I want you to know that the best homes I know, the most vibrant homes I know, in a sense, the most carefree, lightest homes I know, where you walk in and you just feel the, a spirit of freshness there, are those homes that refuse to procrastinate or vacillate or ignore the strategic issues of family life. Indeed, the richness and vitality and vibrancy of these homes is because this family does take strategic action and they focus on the most important things first and they do them before anything else. And that's why they're light. They get ahead in their finances and in their parenting skills and they have clear family values and they understand the importance of communication of husband and wife and parent and child and they have common spiritual pursuits together and they have creative fun and there's romance there. They know what the strategic points of the family are and they go after them first before anything else. When these things, however, are left to chance, and let me tell you, today, one of the worst plagues is hang loose families with no sense of direction or clarity. When these things are left to chance or they're ignored or procrastinated or left unresolved, the atmosphere of that family becomes increasingly uncomfortable and the word I'd use for it is heavy. And you've walked into a home where it didn't take you long to figure out there's heaviness here. There's unfinished business here. There's strategic things that are being left undone. I don't know what they are, but you can feel it. It's in the walls of this family. 
Well, let me show you what I mean by examining the heavy home of a patriarch. It's quite famous, but uh, there were problems there. It's the famous patriarch, Isaac. And we're just going to kind of browse through three chapters, 25 through 27, to make the point, because they're there. You can read the story later. But let me kind of catch you up on this family. First of all, Isaac was, from the, was really the favored son of Abraham. He was the one through whom the Abrahamic covenant and all its blessings and richness and ultimately the Messiah was to be poured through his lineage. So he grew up in this very rich spiritual environment. He saw God do great things. He married well. He went through a tough time early in his marriage to Rebecca where they suffered the the barrenness of infertility, but yet they were faithful to pray and ask God for a miracle. And God gave that in twin sons, Esau and Jacob. The boys had, at least from an outside point of view, the normal kind of sibling rivalry that takes place between two, two boys. But yet, over their lifetime, they ultimately came to resolve their differences. Rebecca and Isaac had a good marriage. There were times where it had its big ups and its big downs, like so many families. But for the most part, it was stable. They were faithful and committed to one another for a lifetime. And by describing that, Isaac would say, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. That's it. But you know, if you were to go and knock on that door and enter that home and go inside that home and live in that home, what you would notice after a period of time in watching them and feeling the environment there is that there was a serious quality of life problem in this family. There were things that were left undone, strategic things. And the closer you get to this famous family, the heavier they become. Now I want to show you where some of the heaviness originated. And as I do so, I think you can feel that at points for yourself. And so this is a pretty serious message. You can feel it for friends and other family members if you have, because these principles, these viruses, so to speak, they kind of infect a lot of homes. But it need not be that way with us if we'll call tales from time to time. So let me let you see what they are. First of all, I want you to notice probably the, the foremost principle of heaviness resided in Isaac's weak and indecisive leadership. That's kind of the head of his home. Proverbs eleven twenty nine 29 says, he who troubles his own house will inherit wind. In other words, they'll inherit turbulence when you trouble your own house. And as a husband and as a father, that's exactly what happened to Isaac. It started really even before the birth, after God had done a miracle and provided this, this wonderful fruit in the womb of two sons. Even before those sons were born, we get introduced to some of the heaviness. I want you to look there in Genesis chapter 25, and I want to look at two verses, verses 22 and 23, and let you see what I mean. Now, Rebecca's pregnant, and during her pregnancy, notice in verse 22, the children struggle together within her. Uh, so much so that she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And then she has this moment with God where he speaks to her his word. And here's what he says. He says to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples shall be separated from your body. And the one people shall be stronger than the other. And then here's the key line. And the older shall serve the younger. Now that's an important message. And I'm sure she communicated that to her husband because that's a very powerful message. It goes against kind of the traditional flow of things. What did this mean? 
It meant that Jacob, who would be the second born, was God's choice. God's choice, not their choice, not tradition's choice, not the way it ordinarily is. God has now superintended all of that. It is God's choice to inherit what would normally be Isaac's right, the right to inherit the Abrahamic covenant and its blessings and its promises and its future that would ultimately lead to a great nation, Israel, and ultimately to a great king by the name of Jesus. All that was meant when it says, and the older shall serve the younger. Jacob would be the father of this great nation. Now, when God reminded Isaac that he was part of the Abrahamic blessing, Isaac had a what would be a normal response. Look there in chapter 26, verse 24. God appears to Isaac in Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him and said that he was part of this Abrahamic blessing. And he says, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you, and I will multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And then notice what Isaac does. Verse 25, it says he built an altar. Why did he build an altar? Because when he heard God say to him, you're inheriting this blessing, he wanted to worship. He built an altar there, and he worshiped. But back when he heard that Jacob, the secondborn, was to receive this blessing from him, he became a weak, vacillating, compromised leader because he didn't want to give the blessing to Jacob. But rather than making that decisive statement saying, no, I'm going to give it to Esau, or rather than yielding to God's will and saying, yes, I'll give it to Jacob, you know what he did? He did the worst thing. He did nothing. He just tried to ride it out. He vacillated. He, he manipulated. He favored one over the other. But, but never stated clearly and distinctly what the strategy was and what that did to his home is that unleashed a perpetual power struggle between the two boys with each other, between mom with the boys, between dad with the boys. Nothing was ever resolved. It was try In some ways they tried to ignore it, but it kept raising its ugly head. And what it infected the family and the marriage and the parenting with was a heaviness because there was not a strong, decisive leader who said, this is God's will, and this is what we intend to do. You know, you see that early in the boys' lives in chapter 25, when Esau comes home from a hunting trip and he's starving to death and Jacob's prepared this stew and he says, give me the stew. And he says, I'm not going to give it to you unless you sell your birthright to me. See, they were having this power play, posturing with one another. So he sold it. You see that when it comes to a later time in Isaac's life when he's an old man, he thinks he's going to die and he calls Esau in and he still hasn't resolved the conflict, but he pulls him in thinking they're alone. He says, I'm going to give you the blessing. Just go out and fix me something. I'll bless you. What he didn't realize is that his wife was standing there ever listening at the door to find out what's going on and hearing that he was going to give the blessing to Esau. So she runs out and starts scheming and manipulating to somehow get it to Jacob before Esau gets it. It's kind of what happens when you've not made a decision on the permanency of marriage or your faithfulness to your marriage or reassured in your marriage or whatever, and you come home and you, you find your wife kind of shuffling through your things, making sure everything's okay. 
Or your kids are coming home, there's not trust, you've not made clear decisions, and you're looking through their things, kind of trying to pick up on really what really is happening. And what descends on a home in those moments where there's the lack of trust and clarity and direction and strategic action and strategic decision-making and clear values, in the vacuum of that comes heaviness. And that's what invaded this home. You know, men, when we fail to lead our homes with the authority of God's Word, when we shape our homes not around its direction and its authority, a myriad of heavinesses are inflicted on us. You know, I grew up in a home like that. And I can compare the home I grew up in that was heavy to the home I live in every day now that is light. And let me tell you, I would give anything for everyone to have this home and not that one. When I think of what I've got, I don't think of who I am or what I'm good at. I just want to fall down and build an altar to God and His Word for breathing that kind of authority and lightness into my home. But when we refuse to listen to what God has said, when we put off implementing the things that are so clear to us, we know exactly what they are. In other words, there may be something right now in your mind saying, you know, I've been putting off this strategic move for years. I need to do that. When we keep procrastinating, we hear a knock on the door and we open it and there's that shadowy figure called heaviness and we invite him in to live with us. Isaac should have told these boys very early in their life, if we could rewrite the script according to the way it should have been written, Isaac should have told these boys early that he and his mom loved them dearly and equally in every way. And he should have told them that though they were equal in their stature and love in this family, God had selected Jacob, supernaturally so. Why? I couldn't tell you, Esau, but he's done that. And he should have shared that with them from a young age and cultivated that direction from a very young age all the way through so that Esau not only would be not bitter, he would be excited about his brother and his future. And what they had cultivated into Esau was a sense of his own strategicness, his own value before God and raised him up to be a great man of God. But by leaving all this unresolved, Isaac cursed his family. He cursed them just like we do as leaders in our own family when we refuse to face squarely the strategic things, whether it be finances or spiritual things or investing in our kids or loving our, our wife rightly. We invite heaviness in. I want you to see that there's a second reason there was heaviness in this home. It revolved around the fact that there was conflicting family values. You get a glimpse of that in chapter 25 if you'll turn back there. In chapter 25, verses 27 and 28, let me just read them for you and you can feel the heaviness. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. I mean, this guy was a, he was a man's man, at, at least on the exterior, he was a hunk of a man. Notice though that Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents, more of a homebody type. But now notice the next line. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. And Rebekah loved Jacob. Now listen, I know that Isaac and Rebekah are great patriarchs. 
Uh, at least Isaac is a great patriarch, and this is a great patriarchal family in Judaism of spiritual renown. But I want you to I ask this question. Really, what kind of parenting is this? That one would love one son over the other and make it known, and vice versa. What kind of parenting is that? Hurtful? Yes. Could we even say maybe abusive? Yes. Certainly sinful. Anytime a husband and a wife hold conflicting values in the strategic areas of their home, they are setting themselves up for perpetual conflict and turmoil and heaviness descends on that house. It could be over how we discipline the kids. We got one going one way and one going the other. It could be in the area of spiritual things. We can't even make up our mind on what church we're going to be committed to. Something as simple as that, but as strategic as that. It may be over sex and romance and who does what. It may be in sense over who leads the home, but if we're going in opposite directions, family life will be anything but light because these issues are so strategic. Amos 3.3 says it best, can two walk together unless they be agreed? And before you read the next sentence, you know the answer. The answer is absolutely no. Isaac and Rebekah should have come to terms with this strategic area of parenting. They should have repented of their favoritism. But with unresolved issues, it just exacerbated this love relationship for one over the other. And by this careless sowing to the wind, they in time reaped the whirlwind, and every family does. You want to see an instance of that? I want you to look at Genesis 26 just for a moment. The last two verses there. Esau's now grown up. He's a man. He's 40 years old. And notice what he does. He goes out and he marries Judith, the daughter of Barry, the Hittite, and Basemuth, the daughter of Elam, the Hittite. Now look at the next line. And they brought grief to Isaac and to Rebekah. You know why? Because these were Canaanite wives that Esau took. They were forbidden wives in the Abrahamic covenant. You need to marry within the clan. They, he went outside the clan, I think purposefully so. He married two Canaanite women Wives who drove the already existing divisions in Isaac's family even further, who made family life in the extended family with these unholy mixed marriages made it even heavier. And I want to ask a question because it begs this question. Why would Esau do such a thing as bring this pain on the family? Why do you think he did it? Let me give you a good answer. I think he did it because he is getting even with his mother's favoritism for the other son, Jacob. That's why he did it. Take that, Mom. Times two. In your face. You see, when a son or a daughter grows up in a home where they realize certain things aren't right, and they see Mom and Dad not resolving them, but inflicting that not only on each other but on them, they don't forget. It registers deep. And oftentimes, it goes so deep, it comes out either in conscious but maybe even unconscious acts of defiance against mom and dad. I mean, imagine 
Isaac and Rebekah, their dreams for their sons were to marry within the family to bless the world. And here's this son now who's gone way wavered, even to the point of spiting them by marrying these two pagan women. You know, perhaps that is why Isaac, in the next verses that fall as you move right into chapter 27, maybe that's why he finally decides as he feels sick and aged and he's beginning to lose his faculties in a sense, that he gives, he thinks, well, I need to give the blessing to Esau because he's, being, he's moving further and further away from the family and we've inflicted this hurt on him. And so I'll appease him by giving him the blessing that that might, even though he's married outside the clan, might pull him back into the family. You know, we do the same thing, don't we, as parents? Our kids start getting out of control and rather than leading them with principle, we begin to buy them out and appease them, try to hold on to them so they won't do anything even worse. So notice Esau is called in by his dad in verse 2 and says, go out and make me the stew. And when you come back in verse 4, he says, so that my soul, I'm going to give you the blessing, so that my soul may bless you. I'm going to do that for you. And maybe that'll hold you. But of course, that decision to give Esau the blessing does not go in secret. Remember, we got now this famous story of Rebecca listening at the door and hearing about it, panicking, running to Jacob, saying, I'm going to go fix a substitute stew. You go put on Esau's clothes. Let's put sheep skin on you so you'll feel hairy like your hairy brother. And you go in and try with your dad kind of losing his sight and his mind, try to convince him that you're Esau so that you can get the blessing. That's the great story. And of course, that's exactly what Jacob does. He deceives his dad and he receives the blessing. And in those days, once you got it, you couldn't unget it. So he got the blessing and it's his now and he stole it. Here's what I want you to know, because that goes right with us. When we live in homes where there's deception and posturing and going behind dad's back and mom's back and between the kids to get what we want. All we do is intensify the dysfunction and chaos even further. Then comes in manipulation and power plays and appeasement because in the vacuum, what else do you do? To lead, to get what you need, to get what you want for your kids and for yourself. And that is so true in so many homes, but you know what that does? That just intensifies it all, the chaos. And so, Rebecca gets exactly what she wants through this deceit. She gets her son, who she loved more than Esau, she gets her son Jacob the blessing. But you know what else she gets? Chaos. Because in the verses that follow, what happens is Esau now is so enraged that now he decides he's going to kill his brother Jacob. That's why... We have more murders and killings around domestic disputes than we do drug deals. If the dysfunction keeps growing, if the strategic things keep laying aside, if the anger keeps being perpetuated, there comes a place where people just lose their mind and kill the people they love. And now that's exactly what Esau wants to do. He wants to kill Jacob. And now mom's panicking and Jacob needs to flee. So she arranges for him to flee to a nephew, Laban and get away. But you know what the sad irony is in all this? The sad irony is that Rebecca, her plan to get Jacob the blessing, ends up in her losing 
her first love, her son Jacob forever. Because he'll go away into exile and she'll die before he ever returns. So here's what her plan worked out. It worked out that she got the blessing, but she lost her son. And you know so many of our schemes end up in disaster just like that. It reminds me of what it says in Proverbs 14.1, a wise woman builds her house, but, she, but the foolish one tears it down with her very own hands. And what does she tear it down with? Truth? No. It's manipulation. It's deception. It's going over and getting a little power play against the other family. That's how you tear down your own home. Talk about a heavy home here. This is a heavy home, but it's not without its reason. There's plenty of reasons why this is a heavy home. In fact, I want you to look at the end of chapter 27 to the very exhausted comment that Rebecca makes as Jacob is about to flee. She says there, this is Rebecca speaking to Isaac. She said, and listen to these words. Esau's matter and all get out. Jacob's leaving and she says, I am tired of living. I'm tired of living. I'm tired of living because of the daughters of Heth, these pagan wives. Esau really has got me. And now I'm going to lose Jacob. And what if he takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, these Canaanite women like these? What good then will my life be to me? Now that's a free kind of fresh home, isn't it? No, that's a home that is troubled and heavy. And you know, as a pastor, you see a lot of families who live in the shadow of an Isaac and a Rebecca. And you know why? Because they refuse to call tails when the coin slipped. If we would just call tails. And what tails means that we would do the strategic things first. And having done the strategic things and setting them strongly in our family, we would find that all the rest of family life would become lighter in that moment. How can you lighten up your family? Well, let me just give you four strategic action points that I think apply to every family. But remember, probably the most strategic action point is the question I gave you earlier in the message, and that's this. You might even jot it down if you haven't already, and that is, if I were to ask myself, what is the most strategic thing I can do for my family that presently is going undone, that would breathe freshness into my family, what would it be? I promise you, if you ask that before the Lord Jesus Christ in the quietness of a moment, He will answer that. He will say, you need to do this with your son. or You need to make up this with your wife. Or you need to get this reorganized. Or you need to let that go. It'll be clear. And then it'll just be a question of whether you'll follow through. But let me add to that four others. Just four kind of principles of likeness for our family. And certainly after looking at this heavy family, we need that. First, it would be this. Have a common source of authority that all members of the family can appeal to. And by that, since we're Christians, I hope the Bible would be your choice of authority. But all authority, where all the members of the family can appeal to a common source of authority where we can find a safe place there, a place of unity there, rather than being because I said so. See, when we start going because I said so or because that's the way I want it, we start creating, we start breathing chaos into our families. Not long ago, several months ago, a man came to me that had been raising his kids and he's done a faithful job in raising his kids and now they've gone off to college and they're in college 
and he's raised them faithfully as a Christian, and he's expected great things from him. He's had dreams, as any parent would, mixed in it, especially for his daughter, that she would find some young, great, godly man to, to marry. So his daughter's been in college now. She's a senior. And he came to me the other day because he said, you know, I'm really troubled. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, my daughter came home at Christmas, and she asked if she could bring a young man home during Christmas that she met and she really likes. And so they came home and he got to know this young man. And this young man is, uh, well, he's an outstanding young man right now. Since he's been in college, he's been growing in Christ. He found Christ uh, early in his college years. But before that, he came out of a really tough backdrop. I mean, there were a lot of hard things in his background, uh, a lot of mistakes that he made and those kind of things. And he said, you know, as I got to know that, I became troubled because I didn't want him bringing all that into maybe some future union. That's not what I've been praying for. I've been praying for a man who's not just totally untainted, but has lived a consistent godly life. And so I told my daughter that I really felt that they needed to break up, that she needed to look elsewhere. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, the other night we were talking on the phone and she asked me a hard question. She said, Dad, where do you get that in the Bible? And so I'm here and I'm asking you, what do you think I should do? <laughs> well, I told him this. I thought for a moment because I thought about my own past and backdrop. And I thought about what is redemption and what is the new life in Christ. And isn't it interesting how we mix our spiritual realities with our personal dreams, what we want for our kids, and God sometimes breaks those paradigms and we don't like it. So I said to him, I said, you know, I think you should consider yourself a blessed man because your daughter is asking the right question. And you know, as the head of your home, you're charged with providing her the right answer. And where is the right answer? It's not in your dreams. It's in the authority of God's Word. When homes find a unity together in the authority of God's Word, a place where you can all appeal, that home is by nature lighter. It's lighter. Secondly, be clear about who does what in a family. The more each member of a family understands his or her responsibilities and agrees to them, the lighter your family will be. But the more unclear those duties and responsibilities are, the more you will be meeting and conflicting and being angry with one another and tripping one another, and it'll just make the home feel heavy. Decide who does what when it comes to the responsibilities. And when that happens, especially when it regards the role of a man or a woman in a marriage with the day in which we live, we need to understand who's going to do what here. And the clearer you can be and the more the two parties agree, as well as the kids, the lighter the home. Trust me, the lighter the home. And so if there are things, strategic things that are being dropped, go out and have a dinner date and sit down and say, who's going to take that? Because until we take that, we're going to continue to have conflict. Somebody's got to take it. Agree on who does what. Thirdly, establish what I call real family values. You need to know that your kids are not going to get values that you like from this world. We don't live in that day where they're going to go out and the institution is going to call them to a virtuous character. In fact, all the 
Most of the time, it's just the opposite of that. So you need to know what your values are and in being intentional about giving your children those values so that when they graduate and stand on this stage and they leave, they know what they're leaving home with. So the question is, do you know what the values are of your home? Could you state them succinctly? You know, we've had couples here, especially in the home builders area, who've worked on a project, and here's what they've told me. We sat down to discuss what our family values were, and we found they were really hard to define. It made us really work. But then they told me, because they flipped the coin, because they were doing tails at this moment, but then they told me, when we finally got to where we were clear about what our family values were, I can still see these couples telling me this. It was unbelievable, the impact on our home. Because things were clear. We knew exactly what we were trying to instill in our kids and what this home was going to live by. We knew it. We could articulate it. It was succinct. It was on our lips. It was part of our language, and it made a difference and impact. And everyone was held accountable to the same values. But you know what? When they're not clear, when they're vague and they're fuzzy, when an employee at your work doesn't know if honesty rules or deception rules, I tell you what does rule. Heaviness rules in that place. Let me remind you what a real family value is. It has three characteristics. It's definable. That is, it can be stated succinctly. It's supportable. Hopefully you can back that value up with Scripture and also from other real-life evidences. And it's observable primarily in you on a regular basis. Any of those three, not true, you don't have a value. But if you've got all three of those, you've got a real value. And when you have a set of values that are clear like that and are regularly practiced, you've got an empowered home that knows where it's going and people are going to feel good about walking in there. When you leave today, the ushers will hand each family a sheet where if you want to talk about real family values, this will be a helpful little guide. So pick one up as you leave here this morning. And then lastly, let me just mention this. Talk openly to resolve problems. Never manipulate or deceive behind family members' backs. Let me tell you, the cornerstone, the building block of good homes is trust. It's sacred. So guard it. Guard that sacredness called trust. It opens so many doors in a good family. But if you don't, if you allow the opposite into your home, which is called mistrust, let me tell you, that is one of the heaviest objects any family can carry. And when that gift arrives at your home, it opens up a Pandora's box of stress. So guard trust. Make sure everyone trusts everyone in the home, that everyone's being upfront. Well, let me just say this. In this series, I have given you two things that I firmly believe in. Two things that I believe would make life lighter, both personally and for a family. There is heads, which means that you somewhere take the time to listen to Jesus Christ. And when you listen, you obey, and you remove the unnecessary things. And then tails on the other side is when you take the time, you have the focus to do the strategic things first. When this coin lives in your house, it does not matter how you flip it. Because whatever side it comes up, your family, your family, and your family members come out a winner. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning, for just a reminder again that there are things 
real things that we can do to make our life one of order and of peace and of direction. All which mean light. Lord, for the things that we let go, we find that hard only in the sense that we need to know what they are. But for the things we need to focus on, Heavenly Father, we desperately need your help to give us energy and courage to do the strategic things first and to believe that in doing that, we will enrich and empower all the members of our family, not just ourselves. Lord, I pray for our families here today. Just in seeing these kids leave, it reminds me of how important it is to be clear about what we're doing in our homes. And now, Lord, I pray that you would help each person, each person who lives in the family, that you would help them answer the question, what is the strategic thing that I need to do that I'm not doing that would bless this home? Lord, give them that answer and then empower them to its conclusion. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.